Open up your Bibles to Genesis 29, okay? I grew up, as you know, in a farming community. In a farming community, when, especially when you're as far out in the boonies as we were, in a farming community like that, everything revolves around either, in our area, everything revolved around the, the price of uh, a barrel of oil or how, that cor- or how that crop was doing that was out there in the field. Everyone talked about it. My folks ran a, a restaurant, a little coffee shop, um, for all of my life, or for the most of my life anyway. And every time those farmers would come in every week, it was like, how's your crop doing? How's your crop doing? How much water did you get? How much, how's your seed? You know, it was just, that was the conversation. And whatever happened out in those cotton fields affected what happened in town. So if there was a drought, it affected what was happening in town. Everything in town was down. You know, if there was a hailstorm that came through and it took out, you know, just a, just a large path and it just stripped everything green off the bush and it did it to enough of the crop in the area, it affected what happened in town. Those crops affected our community. And there are many truths about farming. I know some things superficially, just having been... I was a city kid. There were farm kids and city kids. I was a city kid. But I, I hang out with the farm kids, so I knew a little bit about it. And there was a few things... For instance, like, you know, there are just certain truths about farming. You know, you've got to get the crop. You've got to get the seed in the soil at the right time. You've got to keep it watered. got to keep it weeded. got to keep the pest out of it. Um, you've got to harvest it at the right time. And if, for instance, there was too much water when you're trying to get the seed in, that's going to be a bad thing. If there's too much water right now at home, they can't, right now they're beginning to strip the cotton. They're beginning to pull it out. If there's too much water, they can't get the tractors out there. That's a bad thing. Doug said, he says, everything's out of the field right now. He told me that this morning. It's been pretty wet for Doug even getting his, his crops in. But there's one rule about farming that I'm absolutely positive of. And if you take a seed, any type of seed, and you put that seed in the ground, there's only one thing that's going to grow up from that seed, right? Only one thing's going to grow from that seed whatever that seed was. You put a corn seed in the ground, guess what? You're not even a farmer, and you know it's going to have corn, right? You put a cotton seed, Doug, and if I'm wrong about this, just ignore it, right? Don't tell me anything different. It's for the illustration, all right? So you put a cotton seed in the ground, it's going to be a cotton seed come up. You put, whatever you put in, you put a daisy seed in the ground, you're not going to get a rose bush. But that is an absolute certainty. And in chapter 29 today, we see that Jacob learns that lesson as well. So what you sow and what you plant is exactly what you're going to harvest. Chapter 29 finds us where Jacob is escaping the threat of his brother to kill him in chapter 28. His mom, Rebecca, has created a crisis so to get him out of town because Esau is so angry and so bitter at Jacob that he has threatened to kill him. And the mom, Rebecca, her favorite son is... Jacob, and so she is going to get him out to escape the wrath of her son. So she creates a crisis, and the crisis is, you know, there's just no way that this boy of mine, Jacob, could possibly ever marry a Canaanite woman. Now, that is not something that they would want to happen, but it's not the crisis situation she made it out to be. It was an excuse to remove him from a bad situation. So she had gone to Isaac and said, let's send him off to my brother. He can find a good wife from the family out there. And so they did that. Chapter 29 finds that he's arrived there. He's arrived in Haran. And you'll read here. Let's just read part of the passage. We get started here. Um, 
When Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east, and he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. And from that well they were watering the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would roll the stone from the mouth in the well of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, Yes, we know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, Yes, it's, yes, it is. Behold, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Does this sound familiar to how Isaac also found a wife? But there is some differences. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. Jacob's talking now. He said, it's, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be watered. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered. And then roll the stone from the mouth of the well, and then we'll water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came about when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the son of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went up and rolled the stone of the, from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then, verse 11, ta-da! Here we are. Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that it was Rachel's and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Here we have it in verse 10 and 11. It is love at first sight. He has been sent there to get a wife, and he's found her as soon as he arrived, very much like Eliezer did many years before when he came to get a wife for Isaac. So Laban learns that his nephew is in town, and he comes out to greet him, and you have to wonder, the last time Laban had a visitor from cousin Abraham's family, they brought a lot of gifts, because they came to purchase a bride. And knowing Laban, the way we know him, you got to think that he rushed out there saying, it's Christmas time, boys, let's go see what's happened. And he ran out there, and he found one lone guy. Well, it's not long before the wheeling and the dealing begins with Laban and Jacob. The two of them are very similar. Verse 13. So it came about when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house And then he related to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Behold, you are my relative. Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed but a few days because of his love for her. A few things in that little passage right there. Number one, there is something of a change in Jacob in that section there. Because the Jacob that we knew back in the promised land was one who was a tricker, a deceiver, who was a conniver. He was always working to get what he wanted. And here, he, he, he flat out just steps in and goes to work and abides by the agreement as he understands it. And it says that he loved her so much that the time just went right by. 
First of all, it's interesting that he loved her that much. There is something in there that says a duty of character about, and he's not a young man anymore. He is an older guy by this time, a degree of character about him. But you notice that the last time that we read about coming to Haran for a wife, Eliezer brought gifts because a dowry was what was expected in the purchase of a bride. But here we have this man, Jacob, showing up with nothing to offer. And so what they did was they agreed that he would work for seven years. Now, seven years, what I read, seven years was probably about four times more than what would have been normal for working for a wife. So already you begin to see Laban. He probably could have gotten away with a year and a half or two years or something like that. But no, Laban went after seven years. He went after far more than he should have. And Jacob let him have it. Now, pay close attention in verse 21. He's just worked his seven years. And he's come to Laban and he says, Give me my wife, for my time is complete, that I might go into her. And Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came about in the evening that he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him. And Jacob went into her. And Laban also gave his hand. Um, and just stop right there, verse 23. Well, you know, if that was... Oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let's finish this. Let's finish this. And Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. And so it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Was it not Rachel that I served you for? Why then have you deceived me? In verse 26, Laban says, it was not the practice of our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of your, complete this week. You know, finish out getting, being married to Leah. And I'll give you the older one. For the, for the service which you shall serve for me another seven years. Another seven years. Well, can you imagine if this, if this was a reality TV show and they, they'd sprung this? This is exactly what reality TV shows just wish for, isn't it? Some kind of crazy, sexy drama, bedroom drama, right? And that they would get it, and then the next day, Twitter would be all abuzz. You know, and Entertainment Tonight would be wanting to interview Leah. How did you feel about being snuck in overnight? And Rachel, what did you think about this? Didn't you think you were going to be married? And Laban, what was behind your mind? They'd be interviewing everybody, you know? But you've got to ask, how in the world does this happen? Right? How is it that you can... Think that you're walking in to consummate your marriage to one woman and wake up the next morning and find another. Well, there are a few ideas of this. And first thing we have to think about, and the first thing we have to consider when we read this text, and we have to do this all the time when we're reading Scripture, is that we read Scripture from our vantage point. We read Scripture from our experience, Right? And so we think about a marriage, and so, you know, when I think about a wedding, I think about me. I put on a coat and a tie. It only happens for weddings and funerals. I put on a coat and tie, and I stand before there, and I say, do you? And they say, I do, and then they kiss, and everyone claps, and we go and have a great big dinner and sleep, and, and, so, and that's the wedding, right? But that's not at all what we have here. You have to totally take everything you think about a wedding and everything that an American context would give you to process it, and you have to realize that you have no idea really, of how to think about an ancient Jewish customary wedding. 
We do know, like he says here in the text, that they, they feasted for a whole week. And there are different times when we, we are led to believe that the couple might never have talked at all in the time leading up to their marriage. There are other times when we know that there was a relationship, just maybe friendly in the village and, the, and among the family or something like that, but we know for certain that it was not a dating kind of talk context that we would understand, where they were building a relationship, they were planning the wedding. They weren't doing anything like that at all. We don't know how well Jacob knew Rachel or Leah, either one of them. But we have to consider a few things as we try and figure out how this had happened. And again, I, teach, I often just teach the text with the very questions that I would have myself. And so here we are. Number one, the text says that it was night. Number two, the text says that it was the end of a wedding feast that had lasted seven days. And it is very, very likely that Jacob was highly inebriated, or at least inebriated enough that his judgment was not what it should have been. That would not be outside of the question. It's very possible that she was totally veiled. When we were in Israel, and we toured the Israel Museum um, one particular time, because you know how exhibits often change, one of the exhibits there featured an ancient Jewish wedding costume. And there was nothing in that, co- that, that costume was not covering. Nothing at all. And when you think I'm talking about, this is not like a white veil that you could kind of vaguely see through. The head covering totally covered the face where you could not make out that there was a man or a woman or anything else underneath that veil. You would not know at all. And so all of a sudden when I saw that, I went, that's how they pulled that over on Jacob. That she was so heavily veiled that they could, he could not see her. So that is another option that we would have to consider that's how this took place. The other thing is, is that they must not have talked because you would think that he would at least pick up on her voice, whether he knew her well or not. He had met Rachel at least once, so, and they'd probably been around each other enough to know the voices. And you remember, when Jacob was deceiving his father, it was Jacob's voice that caused Isaac to wonder, who exactly was this? that was feeding me? And who exactly is this that I'm blessing? And if she had unveiled herself, it was probably done in total darkness where they did not see each other. But I think that there's another thing to consider here, another way that this probably took place. I believe that Leah was in on the deception. Her father most probably had put this upon her, and in that culture, his rule was absolute. If he had come to her that morning and said, Tonight, they're going to consummate their relationship. But it's not going to be Rachel. It's going to be you. She couldn't sit and argue with him. She couldn't say, I'm not doing that and stamp her feet. It was in that context, she would do what her father told her to do. And obviously, that's exactly what happened. He set this thing up and said, you're going to be the one. Get yourself draped up, veiled up and everything. And tonight, when they pull back the door in that tent, you'll be the one that walks in. So whatever, whether she was a willing participant or an unwilling participant, she could have said something, but she chose not to. Because, you think about this, because if she had, she would have shamed her father completely. Remember, it says that he gathered the men of the village, and he brought them together for a feast. And if she had talked, 
And Jacob had come bursting out of that tent and said, this is the wrong woman in here. What are you pulling on me? It would have been a scandal. And so she kept her mouth quiet to avoid that scandal on her father and her house. But I have another consideration as why I think that Leah was a willing participant. Rachel's name, Rachel, the name in Hebrew meant you, like a lamb. So something delicate, something favorable, something, you know, a lamb, a little lamb, cute, cuddly, whatever. And we know that the text says that she was beautiful of form and face. So you just translate that today, she was hot, all right? If you're from the 70s, she was like a brick house, yeah, mighty, mighty, you know? All right? I bet you, I bet you Paul Tripp would never do that, would he, Steve? <laughs> All right, but Leah, Leah was not that way. Leah's name has three possible translations, depending on where you take the root to, and none of them are flattering. If you're going with the Akkadian root, it just means cow. If you go with the Arabian root, it means wild cow. And the more, the more traditional root would be wearied. And so here we are, her, everything about her name and the way she's described is not as attractive as her sister. For all her life, the older daughter has lived under the shadow of the beautiful younger daughter. For her whole life. And now here she is tonight, getting the man that her old, your younger sister loves. Do you think that's a possibility? Do you think that's outside the realm of family scandal, given everything we've already read about these people? And if you've read ahead a little bit, you know it's going to happen. I think there's something to that. I think, and, and absolutely, it's, it's just hypothesis. But given what we've already seen in these families, and even what we're going to see later from these two girls, it's not outside the realm of possibility. This was Leah's chance to get in first for a change. But her victory was short-lived because she would never know that her father was going to give that other sister to her husband just seven days later. Look at verse 25. Look at Jacob's reaction. Why have you deceived me? As one commentator says, Laban's deception came straight from Jacob's playbook. And Jacob has gone from the deceiver to being deceived. Seven years earlier, Jacob deceived his father just to steal his brother's blessing. He deceived his father, and now Jacob's father-in-law is deceiving him. Warren Wiersbe said, The man who passed himself off as the firstborn son now received Laban's firstborn daughter to be his wife. And Laban has successfully married off two daughters in one week, gained seven more years of labor in doing so. Laban has proven himself at this point to be the master deceiver. The Bible has many examples of irony, just like this one is. It wasn't that long before, seven years ago, where Jacob had been the deceiver. He and his mother conspired to deceive the brother and the father and to get what they wanted. And now here we are seven years later, and all of a sudden Jacob is on the receiving end where a father and a daughter have conspired together to deceive him. 
The Bible is full of irony. Pharaoh, he has every Hebrew child drowned, and in the end, his men are drowned in the Red Sea, Exodus. King Ahab caused the death of innocent Naboth, and the dogs licked up Naboth's blood. But later on in Kings, 1 Kings 22, you read that Ahab died in battle, and his chariot was brought back to Samaria, where they washed it in the pool, and the dogs licked up his blood. Haman and Esther prepared gallows to hang Mordecai on. And his plot was revealed, and he was hanged on the very gallows that he had built for someone else. And now here's Jacob experiencing that same irony. I started out talking about crops and farming and everything. And how when you sow one seed, that is exactly the seed that you you harvest. And that is exactly what has happened to Jacob in this story. That is exactly what he is learning. That the seed that hits the ground will grow the plant that will bear fruit, just like the seed. Paul wrote about this in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. And I'm going to quote it from the Living Bible because, again, many of you would know it. I want to make you listen to it hard because you might already be familiar with it. The Living Bible says it's like this. Don't be misled. Remember that you can't ignore God and get away with it. A man will always reap just the kind of crop he sows. And if he sows to please his own strong desires, he will he will be planting seeds of evil, and he will surely reap a harvest of spiritual decay and death. But if he plants the good things of the Spirit, he will reap the everlasting life that the Holy Spirit gives him. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? He just, they, they, they take the whole thing about farming and physical seeds, and they say, if in your character, if in your heart, if in your life, all you do is you feed yourself negative stuff, evil stuff, and your character bears that fruit. That's all it's ever going to do. And that character that you impose upon each other, on others, the lies you tell, they'll come back to you. The deceit you feed out, it'll come back to you. All that stuff, whatever it is you do, don't think you're getting away with it because it will come back on you. That is what it says. It says, God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap. But... If you sow righteousness, you'll get righteousness in return. Once again, the text is not about a dead, ancient guy that we've never met, but we've heard his name a lot. The text is about me and you. The text is about the way that me and you sow and reap. And what you and I sow and reap in our lives. Some of us are keenly aware of the seeds we've sown, and we are now bearing the fruit in our own lives. Some of us are at that stage in our life where we have many years to look back on, and we can see exactly where we made a decision. And it has come back to haunt us. And some of us have those places and times where we made a decision to pursue righteousness. And we can look back and say, that has been the greatest thing that's ever happened. Or, you know, you can just look back on those things. The question is this, is that wherever you are in life, for some of us at that particular stage of life, we're looking back and we're looking and we're weighing it out somewhat perhaps maybe. 
what did I sow and what did I reap? And did I sow righteousness or evil? And what, what is there? What did I do? And others of you are young enough to be looking ahead and say, what is it that I want to have in my life? That if I would just want to go ahead and continue to just do whatever I want because it's me, because I want what I want and I want it now, that that will come back and bite you. You're sowing seeds of selfishness, and that's exactly what you'll get. Because when other people have something and you go and you tend to them and you care for them and you, and you, and you, like, you sow the seed of concern and help and assistance, that seed comes back on you. People do call. People do help. They just show up and do it. You don't even have to ask. And so there's some of you in here that are experts at that. That's what you do. It is not even your second nature. It is your first nature. You step into other people's lives and you help immediately. You don't even ask. You don't look for something. You don't say, what do you need? You just step in. You show up with food. You show up and you mow the lawn. You show up and you just do things. And at the end of the day, people walk in and say, who, who brought food to my house? I didn't even know about it. That's the kind of people some of you are. That's sowing righteousness. So Scripture is very clear that, and, and, and in Jacob's lives, life here we see it, but we see it in our own lives. That when we sow discord, when, when we sow bitterness, when we are still angry about old things, we're sowing stuff into our lives. And then this is what I wanted to say, is that you remember when I talked about what happens out on the farm affects everyone in the community? So if all you're sowing in your life is bitterness, then it's just not affecting you. It's affecting everyone you're sitting around. So Larry here, he's just an angry old man. Sorry, not an old man. Angry, just an angry old guy. Not an old guy. i got to get the old out. He's just an angry guy. And every time you talk to him, you're picking up on it. He just is a bitter dude. And it just seeps. It's not contained to his chair. It's not contained. It affects his wife. It affects his children, his in-laws. It affects the Rileys back there. It affects everyone who sits around him. It's not contained. It affects the community. And so if you think you can sit there and just be angry about something that happened in your life and you're not, it's not affecting anyone, you're wrong. It's affecting a lot of people. And it's robbing you. It's robbing you of the joy of relationships that could be vibrant and exciting and talk about great things and not rehash all the offenses of your life. What you reap is exactly what you'll sow. It's a spiritual principle. And in Jacob's life, it proved it true. And in our lives, it's proving it true. But it doesn't have to. Because even beginning today, you can begin to say to God, reveal to me, show me, where I, am, where I am sowing unrighteousness so that I can be different. And then when God reveals it to you, repent. Confess it. Tell him you realized it and ask him to forgive you. He will, absolutely. But here's the catch, doggone. The unfortunate nature of this is this, that at that spiritual level, God will forgive that sin immediately. But the consequences roll down the hill. They will just keep rolling. As you continue to live more righteous, you can, out, you can catch up perhaps. But you can't, you can't go and, 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 I mean, to do something dramatic, you can't go and, and sleep around and not expect something to happen from it. 
And you can't stop that from happening. But God will forgive it, and he'll redeem that situation. That is the joy, that is the beauty of our God, is that he forgives and he redeems. So today, today, consider what you're sowing. Consider what you're about. Consider how that scale is for you. Are you about more about righteousness or unrighteousness? And this is the other thing that we as American Christians are really bad about is apathy falls on the unrighteous side. Apathy. Did you get that? If you just come and show up here, that counts for nothing. That means you occupied a seat and someone probably saw your pretty face. But in the context of sowing and reaping, that's going to fall on the bad side. Because doing nothing is bad. Doing nothing is falling back. So apathy is sowing bad stuff into your life. We have to be proactive. We have to be diligent. We have to be seeking to move forward in our spiritual walk. And in doing that, that is exactly when we begin to see the benefits of sowing righteousness instead of sowing unrighteousness. Today, think about what's going on in your life. Think about what you're sowing. Ask God to reveal it to you. Be quick to confess and repent and begin to seek to sow righteousness instead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jacob. Not necessarily for all the things he did, but because we have the opportunity to learn from his mistakes and and limit the very mistakes that we make in our own life. Today, Father, we ask that you would do a work in our lives, that the Holy Spirit would be active in our lives, showing us our sin, showing us the kind of seed that we're sowing. And may we be quick to celebrate the righteousness when we're doing the good stuff. May we be quick to repent and confess when we see that we, like Jacob, are sowing unrighteousness. May we be people who listen to you and want to know and want to grow. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.